while uh, it is good to hear about our different partners that we're highlighting during Multiply March, I love Pastor Sylvanus and the good work they're doing in Queens, as well as you heard from Jason Cross last week and the vision to start a new church in Dorchester here in Boston. Uh, So sorry that I missed him last week, but uh, we were on vacation and uh, we actually took the longest road trip in our family's history, all right? So kids are getting a little older, family lived pretty far away. It's like we were going to fly if at all possible. Uh, But this time we drove in our rental van to North Carolina to reconnect with some old friends, to see my sister there. And uh, as you might imagine, uh, road trips can be a lot of fun, especially with four kids that uh, range from age 3 to 13. Now, I got to say, our kids are phenomenal. Like, our kids are, our kids are awesome. You know, they were, they were difficult as babies, all right? So, like, parents of newborns, we can really identify with you because our kids didn't sleep and they have these stomach sensitivities. But, you know, after about the age of, you know, two, two, two and a half, uh, they've been pretty easy. You know, we, I don't know if that's going to keep up, but uh, our kids are awesome. And they do really, really uh, great on road trips, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some bickering going on in the back about who's going to get to watch this or play with that. And so, you know, at varying moments of the journey, uh, you know, as parents who, especially driving back in a snowstorm, need to stay focused on the road. By, by the way, uh, at one point in the, in the journey yesterday, my, my uh, wonderful wife says, uh, why are we going on all these back roads? I'm like, Sweetie, this is the interstate, all right? It's like, it's like that's what it looked like, though. It looked like we were on these country because there's the snow. Was, thank, God, thank you, God, for bringing us back safely. Um, but, but in those moments, because I needed to really focus and also pay attention to my anxious wife, they was like, kids, you need to be quiet, right? So, like, the, 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 the volume in the van needed to go down. But then once we got into better weather and we're on safer roads, then, you know, the noise could pick back up. Uh, so so in, in our journey, the, the decibel levels were, were fluctuating from, you know, under 30 to probably close to 120, all right? And, and uh, you probably know that decibels measure the intensity of sound. A whisper is about. 30 decibels. A normal conversation is roughly 60 decibels. The lawnmower that you might start outside when the spring weather comes is 90 decibels. And a rock concert is 120 decibels. And you say, well, Pastor Tanner, why do you, why do you bring this up this morning talking about decibels? Well, when we come to Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12, we come to two noisy chapters. What we've seen in the book of Nehemiah is this. The, the people of Israel were pushed out of their land, taken captive into exile in the Babylonian and then Persian empires. And it was a report of the state of Jerusalem that led Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, to go to the king and say, I am not okay with the condition of the city of my forefathers. Would you release me to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall around the city? 
And we know from the early chapters of Nehemiah that it says the good hand of Nehemiah's God was upon him. The favor of God was upon him. The king allows Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. In chapter 2, he recruits people for the work. In chapters 3 and 4, they start on the work. Even in the face of opposition, they are continuing on. And they rebuild the wall around the city in an amazing 52 days. But as we've seen in the book of Nehemiah, it's not just about rebuilding the wall. More importantly, God wants to see his people rebuilt and renewed in their relationship with him. So the book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding. That's why we're calling it build again. But it's not about so much rebuilding a physical wall as it is about rebuilding a people who know their God and love their God. So now that the people have, as we've seen in chapters 8, 9, and 10, they've renewed their covenant with their God and said, God, we are serious about loving you and following you and living according to your design for our lives. We come to this climactic moment where the people are dedicating the wall of Jerusalem to God in great celebration, in great joy as they Come together. And so the overarching question I want to ask you today is simply this Can your joy be heard? Can your joy be heard? Look at these verses. We're just going to read a couple of the major sections of chapters 11 and 12 uh, as we dive into God's word this morning. Look at the first two verses of chapter 11. Nehemiah writes, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Then in verses 3 of chapter 11 all the way through verse 26 of chapter 12, we have lists of leaders and priests and Levites who assisted the priests, um, who, who are moving into the city and, and where people are living in, in the surrounding areas, um, all listed for us. But then we get to the dedication of the wall in verse 27 of chapter 12. So let's pick up there. It says this, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. You hear the sound. Can you hear the sound of joy? And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. And for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah. 
And Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph. And his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Meliah, Gilaliah, Mai, Nethanol, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate and the tower of Henanel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. Verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. That's the temple. And I and half of the officials with me, and the priests of Ilakim, Messiah, Menanamim, Mekiah, Eloinai, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets. And Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzzah, Johananan, Malkijai, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. Now, don't miss verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Verse 44, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and for the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all the days of Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, and in the days of Jeremiah, Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let's pray one more time. God, we ask that in these moments, we would do more than come to words on a page, but we would actively remember, Lord, that these are words that you have spoken to your people and that you are speaking to us right now. And so God, it's our prayer today that your Holy Spirit would 
open the eyes of our hearts to see you for who you are, Lord, as we look in the mirror to see who we are. And, and not, not to be discouraged, Lord, but to be encouraged to where we uh, look like what you want us to look like, God, that we, would, that we would press on. And in the areas where maybe we need some, some change or uh, some modifications, Lord, that you would give us the strength to reflect your intention for our lives. And so, God, we, we come today well aware that joy has been hard to come by, particularly these past couple of years with all of the different circumstantial pressures and disappointments and discouragements, Lord. There's been so much lament over the past two years, the injustices and the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine. God, we, we have so much to be uh, disappointed by and discouraged about. And yet, God, you tell us that because of who you are and what you've done, and the fact that you never change, and the fact that you have the last word over all of our sin and evil, Lord, that we can rejoice in you. And so God, help us to wrestle with this question today. Can our joy be heard? Yes, us as individuals, but us as a church collectively. Can the joy of Redemption Hill Church be heard around the city of Medford and greater Boston? And Lord, what kind of difference that's going to make as we let our joy be heard? So God, build your joy within us today. We need your help. We ask for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we process what's happening here in Nehemiah's uh, chapters 11 and 12, we, we find this, this important truth. When you see the goodness of God, respond in worship and let your joy be heard. When you see the goodness of God, Respond in worship and let your joy be heard. Again, verse 43 of chapter 12 brings us to what is really the climactic description of what is happening here in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. We see that as they come together to dedicate the wall, they are celebrating with, with loud and almost maybe it would feel wild celebration. And it says here that as they offered sacrifices that day, sacrifices of worship to their God for who he is and what he has done in helping them accomplish the rebuilding of this wall, it says that they rejoiced. Why? For God had made them rejoice with great joy. We know that joy is a positive emotional response to a perceived good. If you, if you ask, and this would be a fun question maybe to wrestle with in community groups, how would you define joy? If someone asked you, what is joy, what would you say? And, and, you know, joy is all over the Bible, and we kind of know it experientially. But I think, and even if you start looking for, you know, scholars to define it and other pastors or spiritual leaders to define joy, it's not easy to find just a really clear, consistent, universal, you know, uh, definition of joy. 
But just a few years ago when we looked at uh, the joy of, that Jesus brings in his coming at Christmas, I worked really hard to try to articulate a simple but accurate definition of joy. And the best that I could do, you could probably do better, okay? But the best that I could do is that joy is a positive emotional response to a perceived good. In other words, when you see or experience something good, it does something to our emotions that is on the positive, not the negative side. And we see this happening here in verse 43. The terms joy or rejoicing are used five different times in this one verse. And it's interesting. In my study this week, I I saw that scholars point out that the terms joy or rejoicing in the Old Testament are used in four different theological contexts. Three of them positive, one of them negative, and all three of the positive contexts are found right here in verse 43. We find joy in the context of worship and festivals. We find joy in response to the character and the work of God. We find joy when there is the joyful anticipation of future salvation. And this is what's happening. In response to what God has done for them, the people bring these great sacrifices of praise to God. All kinds of different sacrifices likely that are stipulated in the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, with all of these different sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to God for what he has done. They are offering these sacrifices and they are doing so with great joy. And why is that? It's because as verse 43 tells us, it says, look at this, don't miss this this next line in verse 43, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And this teaches us that God is the source of joy. If, If we want joy in our lives, we need to understand that joy is a gift from God and it is evidence that he is at work in our lives. We saw this a couple of chapters ago in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. If you remember this often quoted verse from the book of Nehemiah, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we even asked the question when we were looking at that in, in chapter 8 is, hey, is this God's joy or our joy? And we said, yes, it's both God's joy and our joy. It is the joy that we are expressing, but ultimately the joy that we are expressing is coming from God's joy that he is giving us. Did you know that God is a joyful God? That's really, that's really encouraging news for us to consider. So many times we have this misperception of God, that God is just up in the heavens and he's kind of, you know, looking down at us to kind of find when we do wrong things and then he's going to like strike us with some judgment. But actually God made the world out of love and out of joy. Joy is God's response to the good world that he has made. He loves his creation. He loves us. And he rejoices over us, even it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, with singing and with delight. And then we get to this summary statement after we see that that everyone's rejoicing, the women, the children, everyone is, is rejoicing. It says at the end of verse 43, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. 
we get the picture of a resounding, just huge sound coming out of the city as all of these people had gathered in the city and the, the singers are singing and the, the, mus- uh, the musicians are playing their, their various instruments of, of lyre, which was kind of like a guitar and cymbals crashing and, and harps. They're, they're, they're playing all of this music and they're singing all of these songs of thanksgiving and this holy roar is coming across the hills and the plains outside of Jerusalem. The message puts it like this. Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase says this of verse 43. That day they offered great sacrifices and exuberant celebration because God had filled them with great joy. The women and the children raised their happy voices with all the rest. Jerusalem's jubilation was heard far and wide. What a picture of joyful worship, joyful celebration we have in Nehemiah chapter 12. And so what I want to do is this. I want to ask, what do we learn about joy here? As we consider, can our joy be heard? Are we a joyful people? Am I a joyful person? How can we cultivate joy? How can we grow in joy? Because if I were to have just a personal conversation with you and I were to ask you, hey, how's your, how's your level of joy these days? I'm sure we would get a wide variety of answers. And yet my, my pastoral assumption is that given where we've been and even where we are in our world right now, for so many of us, we're probably on the lower side of the spectrum in terms of our level of joy. And listen, you don't need to feel guilt about that. You don't need to feel any shame about that. But we need to know, hey, what can we do about it to experience greater joy and more joy in our lives as we move forward. Three, three truths I want to show you about joy from Nehemiah's uh, chapter, chapters 11 and 12. I don't know why I keep saying Nehemiah's. I think that's the third time. There's only one Nehemiah. There are two chapters we're looking at. So it's Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. If I say it again, I'm not going to stop and correct myself, all right? So three, three truths from Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. Number one, look at this. Joy overflows from devoted worship. Joy overflows from devoted worship. Let's back up to chapter 11 and see what's happening here in verses 1 and 2. It says this, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. What we saw is that after the wall was rebuilt in chapter 6, we would think, hey, the work is done. Everything is great. This is why Nehemiah came back to Israel. Now he can go back home to the king in Persia. And yet we saw the work wasn't done. And why was that? It's because though the wall was rebuilt around the city, the city was not rebuilt within with people. And so Nehemiah had a vision. That's why he takes this, this census in, in chapter 7 and learns about the people who have uh, come back or are currently living in Israel because he wants to know, hey, how can we repopulate the city to make it a stronger city? Because as you would imagine, a city with very little people is vulnerable to attack. And not only that, but it 
lacked the thriving vision that God had for the city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah and the people get to work. And it says in verse 1, this is interesting, it almost seems that they're having like a little lottery to see, hey, all of the people in the surrounding areas, who is going to go back and live in the place where no one wants to live? Which really kind of boggles our minds because, you know, people in Massachusetts, most people would love to live in Boston, right? I mean, we know this because of the property values and all this. Like, people love the city. People flock to the city. People find great opportunities in the city. But the opposite is happening in Jerusalem. It was not a desirable place to live. And so they have to have this lottery system, almost like drawing straws to see, okay, uh, we're going to take 10% of the people, one out of 10, and whoever we, you know, choose is going to go and move to Jerusalem. But then in verse 2, we find that it seems that there are some, maybe they are those that were chosen or maybe there were those in addition to those that said, hey, we willingly are offering ourselves to go and to move into Jerusalem. So whatever the case is, we know that ultimately there were those who offered to and volunteered themselves to go and to move into the city. And what we find is that they are choosing God's desires over their desires. And the people blessed them for it. It says in verse 2, the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And as we stop and think about what's going on, what we have here is a picture of holy devotion. It says that they were moving back to Jerusalem, the holy city. Jerusalem was the holy city because it was the place where God chose for his name to dwell. It was the place of central worship, the epicenter of worship where the temple was located and people flocked to worship God and experience all that he had for them in their collective worship. And so the, the city of Jerusalem is, is a holy place, but we see a, a holy devotion in these people who move back into the city. And you say, Pastor Tanner, how is that? Well, oftentimes when we think about holiness, we think, okay, hol to be holy means to be set apart. And that is true. To be holy means to be set apart. It means to, to, to be different. God is different than us. He is holy. He is other than. Uh, he, is, he is perfectly pure and righteous and, 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 and perfect in all of his ways. And we are called to be holy just like God is holy. That's what it says in the book of Leviticus, echoed in the book of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 in the New Testament. But, but oftentimes when we think about living set-apart lives, we think about this. We think about separating from that which God does not want for us. And so we can reduce, and a lot of times this is what we do with the Christian life. We say, you know what, the Christian life is about not doing this and not doing that and not doing that. We saw this last week, and we're going to see it again in chapter 13. There were some things that God does not want us to do. And so there are some things that we need to separate from. Yes, this is true. But holiness, set-apartness is not just separation from, okay, it is also devotion to. I hope you catch this. So it's not just, hey, we're not doing these things, we're going to separate ourselves, but it is de being devoted to, yes, God and completely committed to him and his ways. So it's not just that we're saying no to a lot of things, but we're saying yes to a lot of things. And most importantly, we are saying yes to God himself.
And this is what's happening here. These, these people are, are moving back to the city out of a dedication and a commitment and a devotion to God. Look how they're described in chapter 11. It says in verse 6, they are valiant men. In verse 8, it says they are men of valor. In verse 14, it says they are mighty men of valor. In other words, these are courageous individuals who are saying, God, you are more important. You are better. Your reputation is what I'm living for. And even if it is a personal sacrifice to me and it maybe puts me in a dangerous situation, I will gladly give myself to live there because that is where your name is and I love you more than I love me. That's what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 11. This is an echo of what it means to follow Jesus Christ when he says, whoever wants to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will gain it. For what does it profit a man? Maybe you need to hear this. If he gains the whole world, we can have everything in this life and ultimately have nothing if we do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These men were willing to courageously give up their own comfort to choose a better path to honor the name of God. And then we find what this repopulation looks like in verses uh, 3 of chapter 11 through verse 26 of chapter 12. I'm just going to summarize for the sake of time for us this morning. So in verses 3 through 9, we have uh, what, what some call the lay families. Just everyday, uh, ordinary people that are moving back into the city. Then in verses 10 through 14, we have the priests. These are the ones that served as the spiritual leaders of the people. They were the, attending to matters of worship in the temple. But then in verses 15 through 24, we have the Levites and the temple servants. They were the ones who assisted the priests by leading prayer and praise, as well as the gatekeepers who provided security for the city. Then in verses 25 through 36, we see the villages around the city are named. This is where the other 90% of the population are living around the city. And this, 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 again, teaches us we can, like, read through these names, and it's a bunch of names, and, okay, then we got the Levites, the priests, and the gatekeepers, and these people living in the city, and these people living out of the city, and what does all that mean? Well, at least one thing it means for us is what we've been seeing throughout the book of Nehemiah, that everyone has a part to play in God's assignment. Some people were living in the city. Some people were living outside the city. Some people were given the prayer. Some people were given the praise. Some people were watching the gates. But listen, it takes all of them working together to accomplish God's purposes of restoring his vision for his people in the place of Israel. But then we see as we move into chapter 12 that this is a list of leading priests and Levites, don't miss this, from the time of Zerubbabel to the time of Nehemiah. And I hope you're asking, well, who is Zerubbabel? That's a great question. Zerubbabel was the governor of the people when the first wave of the exiles returned to Jerusalem. And he was leading the charge with Joshua, the high priest, to rebuild the temple in the city. You can read about them in books like Zechariah and Haggai. And now we have a long list of leading priests and Levites to the day of Nehemiah. And the point of the author here is to show us the continuity of priestly service through a very difficult period in Israel's history. 
So what we can learn from this is that if all else fails, listen, worship must not stop. What a great principle for us to consider as individuals and as a church. That, that even when things are, seem to be falling apart around us, that we are going to say, God, you are still God and you are still worthy of my praise. And so I'm going to bring what I've got and I'm going to bring my best to continue worshiping you day by day. And then this is, of course, what we see as we move into the dedication moment in verse 27. Just as Ezra chapter, I believe, 3 tells us about the dedication of the temple when it was rebuilt, we now have this dedication moment for the wall in Nehemiah chapter 12. It says in verse 27, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with, look at this, gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. What, what is happening here is this. They are saying, God, you empowered us to rebuild this wall in 52 days. And we didn't do it so that someone would write a book about us and say, oh, what great engineers. And, well, they're so, such hardworking people. Look how amazing they are. No, they rebuilt the wall because God put his name in that city to dwell there, and that city was important to God. And they are saying, God, what we did, we actually, we did it for you. That's, that's the point of this dedication. They're saying, God, not only did you help us do it, but now this is all for you as much as it is from you. And so anything, listen, anything we dedicate in our lives, I hope there are some things that you are dedicating in your life to God. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's a new apartment or home or whatever. Okay, there are, we can, did you know that we can dedicate anything to God? We, we, have, we have parent-child dedication, you know, moments in our, in our uh, worship from throughout the year at, for, at various times. Uh, but but we, can, we can really dedicate any, in fact, we should dedicate everything to him. Maybe it's not formal, maybe it's not bringing other people around to pray, but, but ultimately anything that is of importance in our lives, we should be saying, God, not only is this a gift from you, but I want to dedicate this for you. My job is for you. My relationships are for you. My time is for you. And we see how they respond, particularly in verse 27. Here we have a picture of worship. It says that they brought the Levites, the singers from everywhere. They celebrated with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. They brought the instruments to create a, a beautiful and, and exuberant sound. And, and then it says that everyone in the surrounding areas were pouring in for the festivities. This is a picture of joyful worship. Worship is this. You need to understand. Why do we come to worship on Sundays? We come to worship because we see who God is and we want to see more of who he is. And so it's the revelation of God, God revealing himself to us through his word, through Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit. And as we see who he is and we receive the revelation, then we respond in worship. Do you see how that works? We receive the revelation and then we respond in worship because worship is our response to what we value the most. 
we're always putting values on things, right? I mean, we do this all the time. We value our time. We value our possessions. We value our relationships. And so we're always assigning value to the various things of our life. And, and if I want to know how, what your worship looks like, I can probably just say, hey, what's your time look like? And I'm going to see how you're responding in worship to God, right? And so the people are responding in worship. They're excited about God again. We can see that their joy is overflowing from devoted worship. But then number two, a a second truth I want you to see this morning is this. Joy, don't miss this, joy holds hands with glad gratitude. All right? Joy holds hands with glad gratitude. Thanksgiving is a major theme in this passage. We find Thanksgiving in verses 31 and 38 and 40. And even the the word for the choirs in the Hebrew, it would actually translate out in verse 31 and verse 38 as Thanksgiving choirs. So in other words, these people were pulled together to sing together because they were given the specific assignment of thanking God for who he is and what he's done in the rebuilding of the wall and for the protection of the people in Jerusalem. And I love what we see here about the wall. I mean, did, did, you, did you remember in chapter 4 when Sambala and Tobiah are, you know, insulting the people and they're trying to distract them from the work and they throw these insults at them and even say, hey, if a fox hops on your wall, it's all going to crumble down to the ground. I mean, they came up with some pretty decent, you know, uh, uh, you know, cuts to the people doing the work on the wall. But now what we see is what? The people are walking on the wall. I mean, loads of people, singers and musicians and leaders, and they're all walking on the wall. And I love the strategic nature of their thanksgiving. It says that uh, Ezra leads the people to the south in verse 31. And then Nehemiah, that's one choir going to the south with Ezra leading the charge, but then it says that another choir goes to the south on the wall with Nehemiah trailing behind. And they end up meeting where? At the temple, which is where the the presence of God was revealed and where the, the, the worship of the people was held day by day by day. And Alexander Nicolaitan points out this. This is, this is important for the, the holistic uh, look at, at the book of Nehemiah as well as the Old Testament. It says, the scene thus connects, look, the temple, the people, and the Jerusalem wall, each which has been a focus in the restoration of the Judean community. So, so here we see the connection, the partnership between praise and gladness and thanksgiving. They, they really are partnered together. Uh, I had a picture of this this past week. We visited some friends, uh, Josh and Jessica Miller. They were uh, one of the families that moved to Boston to start Redemption Hill uh, with us and the Chasteens and Abby Cook. And uh, the, the Miller family has adopted a boy from China. His name is Isaac. And Isaac is a very special boy. I believe he's uh, maybe five or six years old. And uh, like my uncle, uh, who was named Steve, Uncle Steve, uh, Isaac has Down syndrome. And if you've ever been around someone with Down syndrome, you know that while they may have some physical limitations, they are loaded with some of the 
biggest love you'll ever meet. And so Isaac, yes, you can clap for that because God made them in his image too. And we can be thankful for the beautiful image of God that we see in people even with Down syndrome. But Isaac, what he would do is with Titus, our almost four-year-old, he would go and he would grab his arm because he wanted to play. And he would just like drag him all over the yard. And, you know, Titus took a couple spills, but he got back up. I was proud of him, you know. And but like Isaac just wanted to, to hang out with, with Titus. And at one point, you know, what do we have to say? We said, hey, Isaac, just grab Titus' hands. You guys hold hands. And then that's what they were doing for the night. They were holding hands, going to, you know, the, the hammocks, and then going to the little four-wheeler truck. And it's just like they were holding hands everywhere. And as we look closely at this relationship between thanksgiving and joy, we find they're holding hands. Why is that? Well, I want you to step back and think about what, what happens when we're thankful. What happens when you say thank you to someone? Why do you say thank you to someone? If I were hanging out with Mike and he maybe said something, you know, a word of encouragement to me, I would probably say what? Thank you. Or if, you know, I, I was, you know, Robert and Rebecca, Tuesday night community group, you know, maybe they, they, they bring me one of my favorite snacks or something, just a simple act of service. Or, I'm not giving any hints right now, guys. But, uh, you know, if they showed up in my house and brought me a little something, something, I would probably say what? I would probably say thank you. Right? We, we respond with thanks when we receive something, particularly something that we didn't necessarily deserve. And this is what happens with, with, with God in our lives over and over and again. We, we recognize that God has done so much for us. Yes, even things that we do not deserve. And we say, God, thank you. I love what G.K. Chesterton said about gratitude. He said, gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. So, so, again, perceived good, feelings of happiness. Snacks, I'm happy. Encouraging words, I'm happy, right? And, 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 and it's that, that perception of, of good that brings feelings of happiness. But Chesterton, to, to put a little emphasis on it, says gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. In other words, we're amazed. We're taken back. We're filled with awe and amazement and wonder because we can't believe that someone would really... Now, a snack is not as big of a deal or, you know, like a simple encouragement. But when we step back and think about what God has done for us, when we step back and think, wow, what he has given us in Jesus Christ, this should be the reflection of our hearts. That we see what he has done. We see how good it is. And we can't help but say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for the people you've placed in my life. Thank you for giving me the strength to wake up each day and to make it, even if just making it through the day is an accomplishment, we can say, thank you. God has been so good to us. I was just thinking about my past week uh, as we were away on vacation. God, thank you for my family and my kids who were good in the car, as I already told you about. God, thank you for my friends like Seth who uh, constantly was giving teachable moments to his kids, setting me a great example of how I want to parent my own children. God, thank you. God, thank you for Jessica Miller who made me the best cinnamon rolls uh, that anyone's ever tasted Saturday morning. God, thank you. God, thank you. God, Robert, Rebecca, you heard that. All right. Uh, God, God, thank you for fun. God, thank you for rest. God, thank you for the opportunity to seek your face. God, thank you for the opportunity to serve people and pray and fast for specific needs in our church family. 
but even most of these are just temporal, everyday opportunities. When I was uh, preparing this message, it made me think back to an old song that uh, I used to, to, to sing in my grad school days. No, I'm not going to sing it for you, but the lyrics of the song are just this. When I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up, turned me around, how he set my feet on solid ground. It makes me want to shout, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. When I think about how, Jesus, you left the glories of heaven and came to this earth and took on flesh in our weakness and got tired and hungry just for me because I could never live the life that I should have lived, but you lived it in my place. And, Jesus, I didn't have to go to the cross because you went to the cross for me. I say, thank you. Thank you for rising from the dead and so that I can have life in you. Jesus, thank you. God, you've been so good. Joy overflows from devoted worship. Joy holds hands with glad gratitude. And then finally, I'll make this quick. Joy inspires intentional obedience. Joy inspires intentional obedience. If we look in verse 44 of chapter 12, what we see is this. It says this, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. All right, so what, what's happening is like, hey, if we're going to worship, if we're going to sacrifice, if we're going to honor the Lord in the ways that he's prescribed for us, then we need to organize ourselves and we're even going to need to take up some contributions to make sure that the work gets done and the praise goes on. But the response of the people was not, oh, you're coming for my tithe again. Oh, man, you're asking for $10 out of the Benjamin, you know, again. No, no, no. It says at the end of the verse that... Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. In other words, they were excited to give of what God had given to them because they were excited about the worship happening. It wasn't so much about the priests and the Levites as much as it was what they were doing to worship and honor God. And this is, this is the point for our consideration this morning. They acted because they rejoiced. So many times we, we, we get it twisted and we we like, oh, I have to. But when we see things for what they really are, we start transforming our mindset and our attitude. And it's, oh, God, thank you because I get to. And this is what brings me joy and brings me life and brings me delight. I get to go show up and worship Jesus. I get to sing with my friends. I get to go serve someone this week. I get to hit my knees for Lent. And so God's put some specific things on my heart that I'm praying for, specifically for our church family, people that need healing, people that need restoration in relationships or whatever. And God, I get to do this because, God, I've done it before, and I know how much joy it brings me when I hit my knees and when I seek your face on behalf of others. There's joy to be found there. And this is the opportunity that we have. We obey God's voice because we know it's more pleasurable than any other path. 
We, we, we have tasted and seen. I want you to think back. What, what are some things that you have done for God that have brought you the most joy in your life? I want you to think about specifically what did you love? How did you serve? Where were you? What were, what, were you breaking a sweat? Were you organizing details to accomplish a project? Were you in a, a more difficult area of a city or country and you just were filled up with joy? I bet just the thought of it, just the thought of it makes you want to get back in the game. Makes you want to go and, and serve those kind of people again and, and serve in those kind of ways again. Why? Because this is, this is how it works, people. Listen, please hear this. This is how it works. When we have tasted how good Jesus is and when we have tasted the path of life that he offers to us, we know that we would gladly give up anything else in our life in order to have that. So, so here's the, when we taste joy, it inspires more intentional obedience to keep walking down that same path of joy. This is what Thomas Chalmers talked about a few centuries ago when he said, it's, it's the only way the heart, listen, the only way the heart can be dispossessed of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, when we need to get some things out of our life that, that we shouldn't love, the only way to really do that is by putting something there that is more lovely. And that is the path of Christ. And so when we see what God has done for us, when we see the life that he offers us, when we hear, oh, there's some work to be done, and it might cost us a little tithe here or there, but, but we can give of our time, we can give of our service, we can give of our spiritual gifts, we can give of, of, of our relational equity, whatever it is, we can go into the workplace different and dedicated to God because we belong to God and our whole lives are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. We can say, God, I'm going to walk in your path. Because your path tastes better. Joy inspires intentional obedience. I want to close with this thought this morning. We see the wild celebration of the people of Israel. We see the, the joyful, you know, response of worship over this wall being rebuilt, and, and rightly so. But did you know that we have a greater privilege. As those who know Jesus Christ and worship him, listen, we get to serve the true and greater temple, which is Jesus Christ and, yes, the people of God. We get to, to, to be a part of the true city of God. When it says that we are, Jesus said it, you are a city on a hill. Paul said in Ephesians 2, you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And now we get to not just serve a physical city, but we get to serve a spiritual city and a spiritual people. And we get to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to this God and dedicate our entire lives to him. But as we do so, we do so because we love our God and our God offers us great joy as we follow him. So if you would go ahead and bow your head just for a moment. And maybe, just maybe, what the, the best response for you today is, is, is this. God, help me remember, God, help me remember all of the reasons I have to be grateful. 
God, bring those things to mind, God. Bring the, the, the simple kindnesses that you've delivered time and time and time again to us. God, bring to mind who you are, what you have done for us in Christ. That if we had literally nothing in this world, but yet had Jesus, even though it's hard for us to wrap our hearts and minds around it, that we would actually have everything because we have him. God, help us to remember the glories of your love. And God, let us see the joy that you offer us and let us go after it with everything we have. God, I don't want to walk forward not producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and all the rest. God, I don't, I don't really, if I can just be straight up, I don't want to be a part of a church that's not joyful. Lord, we want to be so locked in with you that we overflow with joy and our joy is heard in the workplace, in the neighborhood, God, wherever you place us for the joy set before us. And so, God, we ask, we ask that you would fill us up with yourself, God, fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that we would reflect you, that we would honor you, that our joy would be heard in Jesus' name. Amen.